This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we talk everything wildlife. Well, it has been a while. I'll be honest, I didn't expect to take such a long break, but work got a little bit crazy, and I was finishing up the film we've been working on. So long story short, we took a little bit of a hiatus. So it only feels natural that this is now season two of the Escape the Zoo podcast. And we've already got a few recorded. So we should be back to the weekly schedule, releasing podcast episodes every Monday morning with leading photographers, conservationists, scientists, cinematographers, all doing great work to help our natural world. And I could not be more excited about the first guest of season two, Shaz Jung, a naturalist, big cat tracker, professional wildlife photographer and cinematographer. Shaz and I talk about a lot from his upcoming film on the Black Panther to how one leopard changed the course of his entire life to stories of sloth bears, elephants, leucistic deer, flying lizards, and so much more. It was a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So without further ado, here it is, my chat with the one and only Shaz Jung. Well, Shaz, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I've been following you for a while now, and I'm an absolutely huge fan of your work. Um... I'd love to jump right in. As as we were exchanging emails, you said you just wrapped up the the filming of a documentary or something. What are you working on? Yeah, thanks, Daniel, for having me. Firstly, and uh, yeah, so I was in the jungle when you first wrote to me, and I'm actually wrapping up a film which we're making for National Geographic, and that airs in January um, on National Geographic and National Nat Geo Wild. Oh, awesome! What what's it about? Yeah, it just it focuses on the life of a black panther, so an individual black panther, in uh, a forest in South India called Nagarhole. Oh, fantastic! Is, yeah. Are you working on it with with Russell McLaughlin and Shannon Wilde at all? Do you know those guys? Yes, yes, exactly. So the first year and a half, you know, we we were together, and um, right now I'm just doing the pickups and stuff like that because I'm a local. It's a lot easier and. I'm a lot more flexible to just, you know, go into the forest, grab a few sequences and jump back out. So, so yeah, so I'm still here wrapping stuff up, but I did work with them. It was an absolutely amazing experience. Great guys, great team. So yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Okay, cool. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't know. So both of them have been on the podcast and I remember talking to them about how elusive this Black Panther is. It's probably the most famous cat in the world. And every time I was following on Instagram, I'm like, the only other person I'm seeing with Black Panther photos is Shaz. I wonder if they're working together on it. That's super cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. He is an amazing cat. And I think he's taken everyone's world by storm. I mean, definitely mine. And yeah, he is elusive. It doesn't get more elusive than him. 
because he's not a species, you know, where, where you can go and track and find. He's uh, a genetic mutation almost. Like there's, there's just one panther in that entire forest. So yeah, it's it's fascinating, and he just showed up at our. So I run a lodge, uh, a wildlife lodge in Nagarhole. Okay. And this guy started establishing territory in 2015, literally 15 minutes away. Yeah, gave me a, a, a beautiful opportunity to document and study a melanistic leopard like never before. Wow, that's incredible. So what was that like the in 2015 when you're running this lodge and all of a sudden, what was the first sighting of this cat? Yeah, it's funny you ask because I actually on that safari i didn't go into the park that day i think i was doing some work back at the lodge mm -hmm. and we sent our naturalists out and one of the guests spotted this this there's a black monkey on a tree and the naturalist was like no we don't have black monkeys in this forest those are lion-tailed macaques which are found further up north you know so you don't you don't get them over here so um the guest was like, no, there, there, there's something black on that tree and it's got a tail. And Whoa. remember, at this point, no one had even dreamt of seeing a panther in this forest. It had never been seen before, never been camera trapped, documented, ever. So I would have said the same. And, you know, as a naturalist. So the naturalist was like, uh, okay, fine. You know, a lot of the time, us as guides, uh, the guests, you know, start seeing a bunch of stuff and, you know, it's 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 a dense and thick forest your eyes can play tricks on you so mm -hmm. but this guy was adamant and the naturally stopped the car reversed and on a tree was this was this black panther and back then i mean this was 2015 he wasn't very big he was about yeah he was a year and a half two years old he'd obviously just separated from his from his mother and was is trying to as a dominant or resident male so he was still pretty small and yeah you could just see him like peeking behind the tree his tail wow. of course was way and yeah within seconds he got down the naturalist informed other cars everyone came rushing in no one saw him again for the next two or three days and then again he popped up and that's where it sort of began you know the journey of the panther and believe it or not it took me a year and a half to see this guy. Really? Like, yeah, like people were seeing him, but he wasn't an animal you could track because he hadn't established a territory yet. So he was all over the place, moving like 20, 30 kilometers a day. You'd suddenly pop up in like the most, uh, like areas you'd just not imagine. And, and yeah, it drove me absolutely crazy. I mean, there'd be times where I'd be in the city and on my anniversary with my wife, and then boom, I'd get a call saying Panther was seen, and I'd have to like drop everything and just rush out. And, <laughs> and yeah, and by the time I get there, he's gone. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, it's safe to say that this guy for the first two years has really like he, he controlled every move of mine. and. And yeah, it was it was the most frustrating, and now now that I look back at it, one of the most enjoyable journeys of my life to to sort of get that first glimpse of him. So I didn't realize that there had never been a recorded Black Panther in that entire forest. 
yes where we are it's a semi deciduous you know semi moist forest where mm -hmm. it, it where the gene is not dominant it's recessive unlike mm -hmm. in other areas where you know in like denser forests the the gene can be dominant but over here it's a recessive gene because it's not conducive to the ecosystem to the environment so this guy is actually not just surviving but thriving against the odds of natural selection and it's fascinating to to see that because and also makes it very very rare but having said that there have been um you know sightings and and panthers black panthers melanistic leopards seen in forests nearby where we are is what we call the nilgiri biosphere which connects three or four thousand square kilometers of forest and within that you have rainforests not very far away from where we are mm -hmm. and rainforests are of course much thicker where the undergrowth is always dense the canopy is green not much light filtering down it's dark and it's perfect for melanistic leopards so a male leopard like him has to establish his territory he has to first find a patch of forest which doesn't belong to another male and it has to have perennial water it has to have good prey base so all of these things have to sort of align and it could take you know hundreds and hundreds of kilometers before this leopard finds you know a territory that suits him so mm -hmm. he could from a forest where leopards have been documented melanistic leopards have been documented like in the forests of kerala like in the uh, nilgiris nearby mm -hmm. but um, again, even in those forests, it's extremely rare. We're talking about a sighting every three or four years, you know, to 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 see one. So yeah, it's crazy. Do you remember what your first visceral reaction was when that guide came back and told you that he saw one? Yeah, I didn't believe it until <laughs> I. So, so the guest actually refused to share a photograph with anyone, and he was from another lodge. So he refused to share a photograph. I don't know why. I think he was afraid he'd lose the rights to that image because you know how digital world today is right. and social media yeah. and all of that. Like so, so like for literally like twelve or fifteen hours, no one, no one knew whether this guy was, you know, talking sense or whether he had mistaken it or or whether this was true or not. So, so yeah, I mean, eventually then the the. The photos came out and it was a freaking panther <laughs> in shock like i remember sitting on the deck like we have a deck which overlooks overlooks the backwaters in the forest and and that picture popped up on my whatsapp and i was like silent for like a minute and i was like how do i see this guy like what do i got to do and that is the beauty of wildlife you know no amount of access money equipment can guarantee you a sighting you could have everything in the world you could be the best tracker you could have the best equipment you could use whatever you can these animals are not tagged so finding this guy was was luck and and i spent a year and a half like i said trying to look for him uh, with no luck but <laughs> You know, they say once it once it rains, it pours. And when I had my first sighting of him, boom, you know, that's when it all started. Can you walk me through what it's like? So as you're you're finding out that this black panther has entered into your forest, 
how do you even begin to go to try and find it? Is it something where you kind of go to a location and just kind of camp out and hope for the best? Or is there like a, a certain uh, scheme that you work up to try to try and locate it? And just interested, because if you're talking thousands of square kilometers in, of forest, how do you even find that? Sorry. So in Nagarhole National Park, where we are, you're allowed, the government allows you two safaris a day. So one's in the morning from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. And another is in the evening, afternoon, at about 3.30 to 6.30. So these were the timings tourists were allowed to go in and, you know, uh, see animals or mm-hmm. track these animals. So, so one, you were, you know, working against the clock. Two, this was an animal which was extremely, extremely shy as an individual. That itself was difficult. So it wasn't about him being melanistic or just one, just just the fact that there was one. It was also about the character. Um, and oh, okay. being a new young leopard, like many others we've tracked, is very difficult because they're very skittish, you know. And this guy was not born in the tourism zone. So you have in Nagarhole or in all parks in core where. 80% of the park is inaccessible um, and you're not allowed in there. It's for the park to sort of breed and there's no human interference. And 20% is for tourism where, you know, there's man-made water holes, there's salt lakes and the, the prey density is great because there's perennial water through the year. Mm-hmm. That density as a result is very good as well. So cats that establish their territories in the tourism zone are used to the sound of cars, you know, vehicles and, and humans. However, cats that come from the core and try to establish territory in the tourism zone for perennial water and this abundance of prey, they are extremely shy. It takes them years before they get used to the sound of the engine, used to the smells, mm-hmm. used to human, you know, to- talking, so the frequencies. So this individual was from the core. He was shy. And also, he hadn't established territory, so we couldn't go wait somewhere and hope for him to pop up. You know, so it took, you know, that's why it took a year and a half to see this this guy because he could just be on, you know, it was all right place, right time, mm-hmm. and it was popping up in areas where you'd never dream of seeing a leopard. So the way of the way you'd probably track him is how you track any other leopard. So. In the forest where we are, you know, there are a couple of ways, but the main the main way of tracking big cats is to listen. Mm-hmm. And it's in the jungle, your visibility is low because the undergrowth is that you got to listen to the animals. And when I say the animals, I mean the prey. So the monkey and the deer make an alarm call. You know, it's called yeah, it's called a warning cry when they sense a predator. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these calls can be heard from kilometers away, like the deer. When the deer streak, you can hear them from, from two or three kilometers down the road. Whoa. And yeah, yeah. And it's like a really loud streak. And you have different kinds of deer, like the, the spotted deer and the samba. The bigger ones are even louder. And then you have the monkeys where, you know, they cackle from the roof. The deer call based on smell. It could be smell, it could be sight, it could be just, they're, they're very skittish, very, very 
you know, um, uh, they're very paranoid in general, deer, obviously, because, you know, being hunted all the time. But the monkeys are safer up on trees. So they usually alarm when they see the cat. So ideally, mm -hmm. when you deer calls, where the deer are calling, and then you try to find a troop of monkeys on a tree in that area where the deer are calling and hope for them to start, you know, giving out an alarm call because that means they've seen the cat. And then you look at where the monkey is looking at and you can sort of anticipate where the cat is going to come out, which way it's moving. So these are the ways we sort of track leopards and tigers in the jungle. And the panther was, of course, is, of course, a leopard. So, you know, there wasn't any thing different we had to do we just had to go around act as if you know i'll just track track a leopard and hope that the leopard that comes out is a melanistic one rather than a spotted one so so yeah that was that's how it's done usually that's amazing i was i was reading this book once called uh grizzly years have you ever heard of it i have not heard of it no but it's about this guy doug peacock who was a Vietnam vet came back to America and was understandably struggling with some PTSD and basically didn't want to live in society yeah. anymore. So moved into Yellowstone and basically tracked grizzly bears for the rest of his life and was one of like the first grizzly bear researchers in America. And I always thought it was so interesting that he was saying when you go from living in society to moving into a place, how place so wild like Yellowstone how quickly your senses come back and how you relate to the natural world to look for those signs like you would see certain birds flying away or making a certain call and could understand where the grizzlies were just based on the the reaction of the coyotes or whatever animal might be in the area and just hearing like your approach to trying to find a leopard I would never even think that just because you don't have that experience living in a city to be actually listening to the sounds of the forest to identify where they are. It's just such a cool concept. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. The jungle and like you were saying, Yellowstone, it, it does heighten your senses. And, you know, in, in the city, we're so used to just sight and maybe a bit of smell if we're eating good food, but that's it really. You in fact want to block out all the sounds so you know hearing sort of goes down touch doesn't really matter mm -hmm. but in the jungle all of that is so important especially because you know when you're out there you're going back to the roots you're going back to where from where we evolved from and you know the the art of survival is is when you're out there is is to sort of trust your senses and yeah they all they all heighten and hear how much further you can hear and sometimes i find it difficult because i become so sensitive to sounds that when i come back to the city you know i'm sitting in my home i can hear like cars honking now mm -hmm. from like miles away and i'm like damn like now i can hear so much more which which is cool when you're in the jungle but it isn't when you're when you're out in the concrete jungle so, <laughs> totally so, so yeah i i agree i mean that's it's a good point I remember my first apartment when I moved from home and went to college in Boston was right next to one of the metro stops. So there was a massive train that would go by every 10 minutes. And the first 
three to four nights that I was sleeping there, I could not sleep a wink because I'm getting woken up every 10 minutes. And then sure enough, on day five, all of a sudden, for the rest of my time there, I didn't even know it was going by, which is just crazy <laughs> to think like yeah. mentally how your brain yeah. just <laughs> must process sound at a certain point in time when the noise pollution is so high. Yeah, which which university do you go to in Boston? I went to Northeastern. Okay, okay, cool. My yeah, my my wife went to BU, so I was in Boston a couple of times visiting her. Oh, okay, awesome. Is she in involved in the wildlife space as well? Yeah, I mean, she grew up in um, in New York, in Scarsdale, and then Manhattan, and then she went to university in BU. So she'd actually never been to the jungle when she met me. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, so she spent her entire life in out there, and then I think in 2010 when we met, I took her for her first safari and showed her her first tiger. And um, yeah, it was it was a fun journey. I mean, it's two totally different worlds. And yeah, when we decided to get married, then she moved to India and she was working here. But then she took a year off to help make this film with me. Oh, so. Wow. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah, it was amazing to sort of go out there and try and track this panther together. It's quite surreal. Yeah. That's incredible. I remember talking to Russ and Shannon and saying it's such divine intervention that you find someone that has that passion and that willingness to, I mean, I think they're home like 30 days a year. The fact that you can find a partner who has that shared interest is amazing, but I think it's even, even more unique to hear that your wife didn't have that experience because it is such a, um, I think such a different change of pace. So it's exciting to hear that she took to the, the forest as much as you did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, yeah, it was amazing to sort of explore together. And it wasn't like I was always into this, you know, mm-hmm. I was, I, I grew up for the first couple of years when my parents, I left Lodge in um, in the 90s, in the late 80s, early 90s. They were building a lodge in a nearby forest. So I was I was very young then, and I was too young to be left alone in the city alone. So I grew up in a little stone cottage in the jungle. Mm. And um, after that, I mean, I then had school, and then I went to university in the Netherlands in a small town called Utrecht. So I had also sort of lost that connect with the jungle for a while. Although that exposure as a child, you know, whenever I'd go back for my summer break or my winter break, I'd always visit the jungle. And it was always, I mean, it's always been a part of me and my family. But at that stage, even even I'd lost a bit of that connect. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'd, I was in the city and I was en route to, to New York for, for my job in the corporate world. And all of that was happening and uh, and yeah, it, it was great to sort of, you know, connect back with the wilderness and then have her come here and us explore together and and yeah, I mean, now you can't take sort of the jungle out of me. You can take me out of the jungle, but yeah, that's about it. What was the inflection point that brought you from going to New York and living a corporate life to deciding to go back to the jungle one leopard and his name was scarface he's the guy who shaped my destiny and it was like a month before i took my flight out to new york 
I went on a safari and I had some time to kill then. And I said, all right, why not? I had, went to the jungle, did a safari and I saw this leopard and this leopard was young. He was about a year and a half, two. He just separated from his mother and weirdly kind of reminded you know, me of myself, like he, he, he kind of, so he, I don't know, there's something about him, which, which I could relate with and I could connect to. And, and I spent the next 10 days tracking this guy and I saw him every day and I'd spend like three or four days together. And that's not easy to see a leopard every day. And, you know, other cars would pass and look for him, but I'd be parked there and he'd just come out. And there was this one time I'd never forget where you know, he, he nearly scent marked my tire and that's how comfortable he got with us. And that's the bond we sort of created in those 10 days. Wow. And I said, this is what I want to do. I mean, I want to explore this forest with this leopard. And that's exactly what I did for the next decade. Scarface and I explored the forest. He expanded his territory. I did too. And, you know, the journey was beautiful because through him, I met other leopards, you know, his, his mates, his, 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 his cubs and other dominant males that try to take over territory from him. So he was, you know, the, the catalyst and he, he started it all, the genesis for me. And it was, and when I look back at it, it's amazing how just one individual, you know, you, you don't know this guy, you don't know he existed. It's, it's, it's a leopard for God's sake. And and, you know, he has the ability and the power to sort of shape your destiny. And he did. And he's still there. He's still alive. He's now 11 years old. He's got, he's got three canines, one missing. But, yeah, I mean, it's beautiful because, you know, I always say this, like, we as humans, we're so, so scared of time. And we're so, you know, like time, like we, we, we're always working on the clock. And these animals have no clue about time. You know, they, they live for the moment, live for the day. You know, Scarface has no idea he's 11. I know, he, I know he's 11. So I know my next birthday. I know how long I have to live. I know my lifespan. And, and these cats don't. So my aim was to sort of live like them, live for the day, not be afraid of time running out. And... And he kind of taught me that, not just him, but but the jungle um, in its entirety sort of taught me that. And that's that's something I'll never forget, you know, to to just live in the moment and not worry about tomorrow, not worry about time running out. Damn. I don't even know how to respond to that. That was, I think, from the start, like such a beautiful story. I I, I think it's so interesting when there truly are moments in time that shape your life that are so drastic like that it's not oh i started having this longing for the jungle and started visiting home a little bit more frequently and developed a catalog of images and started to make some money and then made the jump it was literally i went into the forest one day and saw and met this one leopard and that changed the course of my life that's such a powerful story i have goosebumps thinking about it but I think I think you're right in terms of it brings it kind of full circle in terms of heightening your senses when you're in the jungle. I think there's something that you have to remain present when you're when you're there because there's nothing that's going to get a better encounter than 
just becoming part of the forest and not being rushed and anxious and waiting for things to come to you, but also that you're always listening as to what's going on now so that you can find a leopard or be cautious of anything that might be coming up on you. There's just something that inherently you have to be present. And I think oftentimes in the city, you go through these mindfulness apps like Headspace or Calm and everything's teaching you how to be present and it's so difficult. But I think when you put yourself in situations where there are big cats that are surrounding you or that you do have nothing but time, it's not difficult to be present. You know, you almost have to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's, you know, it's instinct at the end of the day. Like our instincts are so so blurred when when we're in the city because we don't need any of them to survive you know but in the jungle you go like like you were saying with your senses and you you just everything just you 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 get in sync with the forest and and it's it's great it it teaches you a lot i read this quote that you had that said something to the effect of tigers lured you into the jungle but leopards is what ignited your love for the forest or something to that extent. Can you talk yeah. a little bit? I know you, you mentioned that obviously scar was the impetus to your career, but is there something about leopards in particular and their behavior? Because I think from the outside looking in, obviously tigers are what you, yeah, I, I think are really the, the ultimate like predator of the Indian forest is what, what people from the outside looking in think. I'm just interested as to what about leopards really drew you in. Yeah, the leopard, I mean, the leopard just always fascinated me because growing up, I never really saw too many of them. So, you know, they were like these ghosts in the forest where even when you saw them, you, you'd see them for a fleeting glimpse. And that was so true to the nature of a big cat. And that's something I loved about that cat. And leopards are the most feline of all big cats. And what I also love about them is how easily they can adapt. You know, so like you said, the tiger is, of course, the apex. And seeing a tiger in the wild is, is, is something everyone needs to experience once because it's so powerful, it's difficult to put into words. But a leopard in... in minutes of seeing a leopard you know the behavior the potential it can give you in terms of what it can do and how feline it can be and at the same time how absolutely camouflaged and in tune you know the leopard is with his environment and his habitat it's it's just amazing i mean these cats breed everywhere so if there's a disturbance or if there's an imbalance in the ecosystem the tiger stops breeding which is why it's an endangered species mm-hmm. because you know it, it, it can't adapt as quickly to change as leopards can leopards on the other hand you know we have them breeding in our sugarcane fields we have them on the periphery of you know metropolitan cities like mumbai and bangalore you have them in cities not just on the periphery and uh, you have them in the forest as well. And these animals were the ultimate hunters. So a tiger makes a successful kill one in every 10 attempts, but the leopard does it eight or nine times you know, out of 10. And pound for pound, the most powerful cat, you see this animal on the ground 
and then climb up a tree and then hunt or bring down an animal twice its size. It's just surreal. And, and coming back to what I originally said, you know, they, they are powerful and, and all of that, but they're so shy and elusive and true to the nature of a big cat that it makes you get goosebumps. Like when you're mm-hmm. in the forest at dawn, you know, lights just filtering through the forest and the canopy and, you know, there's these shadow play going on in the undergrowth. And suddenly, you know, a tiger, you know, the big bold guy will look you up and down and be like, all right, what are you doing here? You know, this is my forest. I'm going to walk this road, mark these bushes, mark these trees going. Beautiful. But the leopard, he'll give you that two or three seconds because he's not the apex. You know, he doesn't want to be seen. He's so intelligent. He's so cunning that he does not want to just, he does not just want you not to see him, but he does not want the deer, the monkey, no one, the birds, no one should know of his existence and his movement and his whereabouts because that's just his nature. Mm. And, and I love that. I absolutely love that because those moments in your mind, you know, when you see those fleeting glimpses and that ghostly movement of just spots and, and undergrowth parting and, and leaves moving and then eyes looking at you for a second and boom, they're gone. You know, those are the kind of memories and, and sort of images that are, you know, sort of in my mind. And when I shut my eyes, that's what I see when I, when I visualize the jungle. So yeah, that's, that's, I think that's why. Yeah, that, <clears throat> sorry, I just got a little caught up there. <clears throat> that's amazing to me. And I think it's almost, uh, it's interesting too, when you think of, I'm always drawing parallels to my own world, but as humans, there's always that fight with the ego and the the want and the desire to be, to gain attention and I think in the same way we were talking that we've been so removed from being present in our world. There's also something so humbling about an animal that doesn't want attention, doesn't want to be seen, has no ego, just wants to get through the forest and live its life. That It's just such a stark difference from, I think, the challenges that we face as humans, that there's something alluring about it. I think it's like that with cats in general, like they're so different in terms of dogs in the sense that they have that nature that they're not concerned with you. You know what I mean? And it makes you want them even more because they just don't really care if you like them or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you own the dog, the, the, the cat owns you. So <laughs> exactly. That's just, that's just their air of arrogance. And I mean, I completely agree with you. And there is something very, very beautiful about an animal that doesn't really demand or, or want that attention. And yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. The leopard is that animal. Do you ever see them interact with tigers? Um, no, because, you know, the tiger is four or five times its size and absolutely detests leopards. So they would kill a leopard in, in seconds. Oh, I didn't know there so- was that big of a size difference. Yeah, it's a very interesting fact. In fact, it's something I always, you know, ask guests who come to the resort. I always say this, and I'm going to ask you this. So you have a big male leopard, let's say 10 years old in his prime. How much do you think he weighs in what, kgs, pounds? What do you want to do? 
uh, pounds, I would say 90. 90 kgs? 90 pounds. 90 pounds. Okay. So a big male leopard, 90 pounds. All right. And what about a tiger? 180. 180 pounds. Okay. That's a really bad guess in retrospect. I feel like everybody listening is making fun of me. I think it's probably a little more. 220. Sorry? 220 maybe. Okay. Well, let's let's do the first one. A leopard is uh, a big male leopard goes up to about 60, 70 kilograms, which is about 140 pounds. 140, 150 pounds. Oh wow. That's a big yeah, that's a big male leopard. And when you look at that animal, you're like, damn, that is, you know, that is a powerful cat. But having said that, a tiger. We're talking about a big male tiger, equivalent to the same age as a big male leopard, would goes up to around 280 to 300 kilograms, which is what, uh, 600, 620 pounds. What? So yeah, yeah. So we're talking about different beasts over here, both extremely powerful, but one that can absolutely decimate the other. And um, that's why you don't really see any interaction between the tiger and the leopard because there would be no interaction. There'd just be death. Damn. I had no idea that. I mean, you, you picture tigers as massive animals, but that's next level. Yeah. You know, even when you look at a tiger, you'd never imagine that that's 600 pounds of, you know, and that's just not 600 pounds of fat. That is pure muscle. I mean, that, that, that animal can leap 15 feet he's agile he's strong and he's quick damn so so for that reason now that i'm thinking about it do you ever i'm assuming no with guests but i'm not sure personally do you ever go on foot into the jungle to take photos or film or is it always something that you want the protection of the car yeah, in this forest, you it's a bad idea. Also, you're not allowed. So all these are protected. Wherever you have the tiger, it becomes a protected, you know, tiger national park. So over there, you have a bunch of restrictions, and one of them is to not walk in the park. And that's a very good <laughs> rule to have. <laughs> yeah. Not because of the tiger. The tiger is a gentleman. You know, you, you walk. And outside in the periphery of the forest, I've seen tiger on foot and leopard many times, not something I'm afraid of at all, because they're very gentlemanly. They, they see you, they look you up and down. You know, a male tiger will look you up and down. And leopards are extremely shy. They see you from a distance and boom, they're down the tree and gone, even the biggest leopards. They don't want to have anything to do with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, of bear and elephants, two animals that are responsible for the most number of deaths uh, in India. Really? Yeah. So elephants are extremely aggressive. And when you're on foot, I mean, they are deceptive. They're so quick. So there's no getting away unless, you know, you're someone who's like a tribal who's lived in the forest who can climb a tree or you see them from a distance and, you know, you run away. Or if it's a mock charge and the elephant's just doing it to scare you. But if he's coming to kill you, you're, you're dead. Like, And they trample a lot, a lot of people in our forests. And um, 
And bears, sloth bears are frightening, man. They're these hairy. I, I, I don't know if you've seen one, uh, an image of one, but oh, they're only these, in your photos. Yeah, so they're these like um, mostly nocturnal, um, and they come out during certain months to mate. You usually during the rain, but these animals have really, really bad eyesight, but very good smell and hearing. So when they stumble upon you, they can't really tell what you are, but they can smell you and they can hear you. And when you get attacked by a bear, the, the, the scary part is all bear survivors, are, well, you usually survive the bear attack, but all bear survivors are faceless because the bear goes for your face and your uh. eyes. Yeah, so so it's, it's, it's also, um, you know, pretty common in tribal settlements or in areas on the periphery of the forest to, to have, you know, faceless people who've been mauled by bears. So, wow. yeah, it's pretty frightening. So uh, all the kids listening do not walk in the forest. That's crazy. I had no idea, especially because if you look at a sloth bear, and this is why you shouldn't anthropomorphize animals. Like I see a grizzly bear and I'm like, that's a terrifying animal. I am not going to go near that. Whereas you see a sloth bear, they look kind of harmless. Not harmless, but they definitely don't look as intimidating as a grizzly bear. Yeah, yeah, and they're much smaller as well. But um, yeah, you you know these animals. If you if you respect them, you give them their space, or even if you let them know, if you really have to walk in the forest, let's say you're stranded, you know, it's best to let them know you're there. Mm-hmm. You know, from a distance, like elephants, let them know that hey, I'm here. You know, I'm just going to be doing my thing and walking by, you know, no need to, no need to freak out. But they usually attack or they come for you when you startle them, you know, when your mind turn and boom, they're right there. And it's, it's actually happened to people I know. Um, And we have a tribal settlement, which is very close to the wildlife lodge of ours mm-hmm. and a lot of the time we get these people to to a lot of the time we get the tribal chief or the head or people from the forest to come and tell tales um because they are the honey hunters so they're people who who are allowed to walk in the forest they're called the Janu kurbas which means the honey hunting tribe and uh, they're allowed to walk by law to to sort of um gather honey so they climb trees and um, – sorry, one sec. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they, they climb trees and uh, they go and get encounters and frightening encounters with these animals. And that's wow. what they say. They, you know, try not to startle an animal. Let them know you're there. Make some sound even when you're walking. You know, the biggest mistake people do are try to be as quiet and, you know, not be seen. But the jungle is always watching you like you can't escape it. That's something I've heard that there's such a big difference in the disposition between an Asian elephant in India and and the African elephants where the African elephants seem a lot more calm and docile, whereas the Asian elephants are a bit more ornery and ready to charge. Do you think that's more of a fact that it's harder to sneak up on an elephant in Africa because they're these open savannas or is it something where you feel that there's just a pure instinctual difference between the two animals? 
No, you're absolutely right. Indian Asian, Indian elephants uh, are far more aggressive than the ones in Africa. And the reason behind that is because elephants are migratory animals. So they, through their life, they move, you know, thousands of maybe kilometers. And they're always migrating towards uh, fresh grazing grounds or, you know, lush foliage for them to eat. So, so you have to understand that this animal travels a lot in its lifetime. And as a result, in India, when it's traveling, a lot of our corridors have eroded, the corridors which connect forests. So there's a lot of urbanization, a lot of settlements that have come up. So they are now coming into conflict uh, with humans a lot more. And this, over time, has changed the behavior of these animals because of this. So when they migrate another, you know, there's, there's always a settlement um, which they have to sort of bypass or even sometimes go through. And that's traumatic for these wild elephants. Oh, yeah. Destroy crops, they destroy infrastructure, and and not to blame the, the, the locals entirely, it's the system in, in, uh, and the fact that we've grown so exponentially as a country that a lot of our forests have, you know, eroded. And um, uh, so, so as a result, the elephant is in conflict, you know, a lot more in India with man, whereas in Africa you have, you know, well, well let's talk about, for example, the Serengeti. Mm -hmm. That's 50,000 square kilometers of national park. And then you talk about Nagarhole, which is where I am which is 650 square kilometers. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about huge, huge differences in sizes of forest and land and migratory routes. So that has, is, is the reason why these animals appear to be more aggressive. It's because the conflict culture is real. And, you know, these, these forests, are, are, of course, tiger reserves are, are protected. And there's a positive spillover because if the tiger is protected, then all the animals in the area are protected. But other... And, you know, due to successful park management in these tiger reserves, the population is increasing of uh, these animals. You know, there's perennial water. The, the forest department is doing a good job in, in making sure that, you know, there's not any poaching going on and all of that. But these migratory animals like elephants and territorial animals like big cats cannot just survive within that 650 square kilometers. They have. And if there's not enough forest to move into, then they're going to come into conflict with man. And uh, you're seeing a lot of that happen now in India. To tackle and uh, something which conservation has to look at because we are obsessed with protection. You know, mm -hmm. we have a protection act and it's great. It, it means, you know, protect the forest and do all of that. But we're lacking in, in, in a, you know, a conservation act or a, an act which is dedicated solely to conservation where it looks at the bigger picture and um, it looks at, I think, sort of changing the psyche of people because 
the generation above us, like our, our parents' generation, that that to me is a lost generation. You know, they're too old to change, and they're not going to change their mindset. They're set in their ways. It's us, and even us, the majority of us, you know, uh, are set in our ways. But it's it's the generation below us that we have to sort of drip on and change you know, the mentality of these people, not just you and I. See, me, when I'm an educated person living in India in a metropolitan city, and that's just 10% of the country. You know, the majority of, of our country is rural in uh, and villages and settlements that, that are around national parks. And that's where we need to focus. That's where we need to educate, create awareness, start young at schools, show them, you know, how ecotourism, wildlife can all have a positive impact on the economy, create jobs, but at the same time also help mitigate the conflict between man and animal. So, yeah. Yeah, I I agree entirely. And I think that kind of bringing it back to the genesis of this conversation I think the elephant is such a powerful example of that in the sense that it's so sad to me to think of something that by nature is probably as docile and calm as an African elephant has had to resort to this incredibly ornery, constant state of fear and stress and trauma. Um, And I think there's a lot of work to be done to think of how do we find ways to actually coexist as opposed to protect, I think is a really strong way of th- the way that you phrase that in terms of focusing less on protection and more conservation in that coexistence is something that's so incredibly powerful and is going to require, it, it's not just dollars. It's kind of like what you were saying, like no amount of money can, can get you to see a black Panther a lot of these problems is really just a cultural mind shift in terms of how do we interact with the wild and how do we set up systems in place to actually care about animals in a way that's not just for our benefit. Like I think unfortunately a lot of protection is just, we want to make sure that these are there so we don't feel terrible about ourselves that they disappeared, but more so focus on conservation for the fact that those are important lives that are, worth living and have dignity and need to be supported in the same way that our lives all have dignity and need to be supported. Um, and I think that's oftentimes lost in kind of the framing of the discussion, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. I completely agree with you. And coexistence is the utmost priority right now. And it's not like it isn't happening. You know, there's parts of India where coexistence is happening and to make sure that we, you know, educate the masses and, and, and you know, do it in a way that's not going to really threaten the culture or the society. Totally. So, yeah. Um, I think that brings me to, I know you are... I believe the founder of the Buffer Conflict Resolution Trust. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what the the goal of that organization is? Yeah, so the Buffer Conflict Resolution Trust was basically a trust we set up in um, in uh, together with the lodge we run, the Bison. 
And it basically dealt with what we were talking about, um, uh, trying to create, you know, this little change in, in, in the mindset within the local area we operate in. And, and, you know, we, we do that with, you know, paraphernalia, like, like books and, and visual prints and, you know, um, little documentary readers, informative readers on wildlife, which we can share in schools Mm -hmm. and, um, help these children understand the animals that, that live in the forest, you know, just a stone's throw away from their house. So, you know, it's, 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 it's something we have to look into, but at the same time, it's difficult in, in a country like ours, because you also want to respect the law and, you know, the, the duty of, or the job or the responsibility stepping those boundaries mm-hmm. and for example anti-poaching you know we'd love to go into the forest and help with picking up snares but you're not allowed to do that by law because it's a protected area so you can't take people in and do that so we set up a few anti-poaching programs outside where with our guests with volunteers you know they, they walk on the periphery of the forest and pick up snares and we found, I mean, you'd be surprised. Many people would be surprised. You know, we find so many snares and, and traps just for, you know, basic wildlife because these people, you know, they're people of the forest or they were at least people of the forest and they need it for their sustenance and, and food as well. You can understand one side of the story. But, you know, like you said, coexistence is, is now the future. So we help with that as well. And, also, what we decided to do was provide vocational training, which was, you know, simple skills, simple, you know, like like housekeeping, like service, like um, how to, you know, stitch. Um, and, and these skills would allow them to sort of not just work in the villages, but go into towns or cities where, you know, they, they could, you know, get a better income. And something where we wanted to sort of focus on was the women in the society, not just the men, because women in, in, in our society or in, in rural India, you know, usually, usually they stay at home and they cook and they take care of the family. Their role man goes out, you know, does the daily labor, gets his wages in, or he's in the fields farming. You know, the women usually stays, the women usually stay at home. So we wanted to just sort of show they could work as well. And, you know, you could double your income. The household could have a, a new source of income and your your quality of life could in, improve. And, you know, it could be done in a very non-threatening way that mm-hmm. doesn't harm, you know, society at all. So, um, So it's great to sort of, so show show the society and, and empower you know women in the society because um yeah yeah they they're they're another you know like like men they they could help the family to a huge huge extent and that's something which is a touchy topic which you know we're trying to address in rural india so these are the few things we do we get many volunteers which come in as well uh, and help us out uh, through the year and you know we we also 
uh, through the along the way we teach them camp management and you know training to be a you know a, a naturalist as well so so there's a bunch of things we do uh in the area so yeah that's bcr is yeah that's fantastic and so important and i think <clears throat> the more you can empower um, folks in the community too it can also have that byproduct of alleviating some of the stresses of needing to to garner resources from the forest which is such a win-win um in all of those situations um i wanted to go into a i was gonna say a short list but i wouldn't say it's short necessarily of rapid fire questions of things that have just come up or um that i've seen on your instagram and would love kind of a quick story and background behind if you're cool with that yeah uh the white deer i saw a photo of a white deer almost like the albino that you filmed can you talk a little bit about that story yeah, so that's not an albino. That's a leucistic deer. Leucistic, sorry, deer. So it, it has leucism. So um, that's basically, sorry, it's a tongue twister. People are making fun of me out there probably. Like senior, <laughs> senior naturalists are like, what is this guy saying? But um, yeah, that's basically, it has a deficiency in melanin. Uh, like like the black panther has an abundance in melanin, The this deer has a deficiency. It's It's not albino. Albino would be, you know, the the eyes would be a different color and um yeah completely different so this is a leucistic yeah so it's like the the spirit bear of the indian rainforest yeah exactly okay very cool how rare are those uh very rare in fact but recently like over the last decade or so you know i've seen more and more um you know pop up every every you know in certain corners of the forest but they start to get darker as they age so you know they they're really white there's there's a picture which i'm sure you're referring to we're talking about you know they they're white when they're young but as they get older you know they they, they just look like a regular spotted deer but slightly more faded so so they sort of lose that white sort of unique coloring um, as they age, but yeah, they're, they're about three or four of them now. Oh, very cool. What would you say your favorite animal in the forest that that's more unexpected? So not one of the big cats or, or something to that effect, something that you've grown to appreciate in the forest that most people wouldn't think to. The Draco, it's the flying lizard. I can watch that, that little lizard fly all day. And I think one of my most beautiful memories is um is you know when when i close my eyes again and and i think of the beautiful things i've seen in the forest it's not a tiger it's not a leopard sitting on a tree it's actually this little lizard which i was i was in a safari jeep standing up and trying to listen for calls and you know it was at the time of the year where all the trees the deciduous trees were shedding their leaves so you had this gentle breeze bringing these leaves down to the forest floor. And I look to my left and what I had assumed was a leaf falling. It was exactly like, you know, a golden leaf which came down, but then just stuck itself onto the bark of a tree, not more than two or three feet away from me. That was the time I actually saw one like up close 
flying because usually you either see them flying and that's like really quick but if one gets comfortable with you and i think this guy got comfortable with us because we were parked there for a long time and he must have just thought we were you know part of the furniture like another tree or something so he came down so gently and just glided down and stuck himself on i think that is one of my probably one of my most favorite animals yeah in the forest which wow. not many yeah. yeah i haven't even heard of it i'm gonna i'll link to a video of it in the show notes for listeners that want to check that out how about yeah, this the, the scariest yeah. moment have you had any kind of close encounters or just things that were a little too close for comfort yeah i have um you know you you go out into the forest and you expect everything to go absolutely fine but but sometimes you know your your car breaks down you run out of fuel and you're in an area where you don't have connectivity but you're not allowed to get out you're not allowed to walk it's getting dark you know it's that twilight hour and the jungle's waking up and you're like damn i'm responsible for like eight or ten guests in my car right now and their safety what am i gonna do mm-hmm. so there have been moments like that where you know the 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 guy the driver and i have been in the forest in an area where we're completely cut off from the world and you know especially in winter where it gets dark much quicker and we've been stranded out there until you know we the, the driver had to walk you know uh, probably 100 meters or so get signal call for another car and come back but you know in that it takes about half an hour 45 minutes and then for the car to come and all of that maybe more maybe like a couple of hours and I remember this one time we were with these clients and our car, it was in the monsoon where there was a lot of rain and our car got stuck. And we had these clients from, where was it? It wasn't from India. They were, they were foreign clients from, I think, I think from America, if I'm right. And they'd never been to the forest before. <laughs> and you guys were scared at camp, let alone in the forest. You know, they, they were like, freaking out at camp in a you know <laughs> luxury tent so so yeah i mean it's funny how the world works it always happens like you know in, in these kind of situations so so yeah the car got stuck we couldn't get it out we had to call another car we were in an area where there was absolutely no signal we had no torches just the iphone torches the driver took off to go and find some signal and I had to keep these guys calm and this was when the jungle started waking up and mm-hmm. believe it or not, like you hear the crickets you hear the call of a night jar you know these are all you know the night's faithful creatures which come to life and we hadn't seen a single animal that day because it was raining and the rain sort of died down um, you know at the time and the jungle came to life and you could start hearing these sounds and not more than, I kid you not, not more than about 30 or 40 meters away, a tiger started roaring. And <laughs> that is one of the most bone-chilling sounds you can hear in the forest. And, you know, the tiger's voice, it, it reverberates the sound. It, it, it can carry up to four or five kilometers so that they can find each other. Mm-hmm. So that's how loud, you know, a tiger's wow. roar. That's and it's wild. like really deep 
sound which comes straight from the chest and and he started roaring from like 30 meters 40 meters away and and you know the clients didn't have any idea what that was (laughs) what is that sound and i tried everything i could you know the, the sound was initially in the distance so I was like, it sounds like the hooting of an owl. I was like, no, that's 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 a spot-bellied eagle owl. <laughs> and then when it got closer, I was like, no, no, wait, that's the drongo, the racketeer drongo, which mimics other birds and other sounds. I think it's mimicking a sound. Um, and then, you know, it was like not, not far from us. And I couldn't lie anymore. And I was like, guys, I think that is a tiger and I had to play it off like they were super lucky to hear a tiger (laughs) but it didn't work I mean these guys started freaking out and you know paranoia sort of it's like contagious it spreads and everyone in the car started freaking out and then I started freaking out and I was like (laughs) you know I'm stuck here with these guys and I have no torch I have nothing and I gotta wait and then I had to worry about the driver who is somewhere getting signals. So, so yeah, I mean, there have been moments like that where you're not really in danger, but you're, you're, you're scared. And then there are moments where you're actually in danger, where, you know, you get surrounded by a herd of elephants, mm-hmm. uh, especially, you know, angry elephants. And you can't go in front because, you know, there's two or three blocking you. And then behind you, there's the herd as well. So... There have been times where, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the time, elephants usually they mock charge. They don't come to hit you, but you know, reading the body language of an animal, especially an elephant, is not very difficult. So when the elephant charges with its head upright, you know, and its ears flapping, you know that it's a mock charge, like mm-hmm. just looking at you, sizing you up. But when the elephant puts his head down, you know looks at the ground, sticks its forehead out, and comes for you, that's when you know he's coming to hit you. He does Ooh. not care where you are, how far you are. That's when he's coming to knock your car. <laughs> there have been times where we've been surrounded by a herd, and I can sort of tell, I can read the body language, and I'm like, okay, we're safe now. And it's usually with the rogue, you know, the, 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 the bulls, which... Uh, the tuskers, which come into what we call must. So mm-hmm. that's when, you know, they, they come into this mating time where they have excess testosterone in their body and they're leaking from the temples. And they, it's, a, it's a dangerous time to be around these elephants, these big male elephants in, in must. And, you know, they're very aggressive, highly volatile, very unpredictable. You don't know what they're going to do when. He could be, you know, right next to you grazing, you know, and you're like, wow, this is a calm, docile elephant, and then flips, you know, mm. comfortable, make sure that, okay, your engine's off, everything's fine, and then flips and comes to hit you. And we're talking about like five or six tons of force, which can, you know, you'd think that if an elephant hits you, you know, in your mind, you're like, okay, your, your car's going to like get badly, you know, damaged, and he's not going to do more than that, but he will flip your car with ease. Whoa. So... So, yeah, you, you know, there have been times where these elephants in must have charged us, not for like 10 meters, 20 meters, 50 meters, but like for like a, like easily half a kilometer down the road. Whoa. And you, 
Yeah, and you're thinking at that time, like, if your car stalls, if the driver freaks out, or if you lose your composure, or if there's a roadblock, there's something fallen, like a tree fallen on the road, then, you know, you have no idea what's going to happen. And it's it's frightening. I mean, touch wood, you know, we've never been in a situation where we've been hit. But you keep seeing these videos cropping up now on, on social media where, you know, like in Africa and in parts of India where they do hit the vehicle. Mm-hmm. It is a possibility. And um, we've come very, very close to it. So I'd say that's where, you know, danger sort of looks. But other than that, you know, the rest, the cats and all of that, you know, they come close. It's, it's an exhilarating experience. It's, it's beautiful to have a big cat next to you. But, yeah, you know, they don't know what you are. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people think that they look at you and they're like, wow, that's food. No, you're alien to these guys. You're alien to their diet. They, and believe it or not, you don't smell like a human. You know, you're where you, you come with your cologne. You come in a car which is smelling of fuel. Your scents are completely masked. Mm-hmm. You know your, your your clothing. So, so they can't really smell you un, unless you sort of get out of the vehicle, and then they can differentiate you from the vehicle. And that's you know something you don't want to do when a cat's nearby. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. If you were to encapsulate why you do what you do, um, what what's your north star? Wow, that's, I think passion is what drives me, but I think the reason I do it is to inspire people to to go into the forest. You know, there's, I have friends, best friends, some of them who might be listening to this eventually, and and they don't have a clue of what exists just three and a half, four hours away from their doorstep. And if these guys who have social media, the reach, you know, connections with the news and televisions. If these guys don't know what's in there, then how is the rest of the world or the rest of the country going to know? So my aim is to inspire, you know, these people, uh, not just people, not just wildlife enthusiasts, not just naturalists, not just photographers, but people from all corners of the globe and to try and connect the jungle with people who wouldn't you you wouldn't really imagine you know being connected to the jungle and that's what it is about it's about inspiring them by creating you know this ethereal sort of magical feel to my images so i think that's that's really my aim my goal and i call it environmental surrealism and uh, it's just to portray these animals and the jungle as this surreal sort of beautiful place but at the same time a a place which you know needs your help and is slowly withering away i love that that's really well put and my last question which is probably my most difficult (laughs) if you could take out a billboard and place it on the side of the most heavily trafficked highway in the world that disseminates one message in 10 words or less, what would you put on that billboard? Oh my God. <laughs> that is not, that is not, uh, wow. 
Uh, ten words or less. Um, I, th oof. I think. What would I say? Okay, firstly, the image would be. Yeah, the image would be something powerful, which has to obviously visually capture the people's attention. But um, yeah, I, th I, I don't know. I think it would be the panther with his luminous, like you know, his his green eyes staring at you are kind of like one of my dark edits and, and oh, something I'd say, let me try and wing it. Like something I haven't said before, probably something like the jungle is always watching, but not for long, something like that. Ooh, <laughs> damn. That's yeah. good. That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's the most, um, creative, answer i've received on the podcast and that's good i like that a lot yeah i don't know if you're just being nice or <laughs> no but... i'm being genuine i i yeah. yeah no i'm i'm honestly being genuine i think that's really good yeah so i think that would be it the jungle is always watching dot 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 but not for long so it would have that you know message where we need to lure you into it to come save us well hopefully i'll eventually be lured in and we can we can meet in person in the jungle. Um, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Shaz really appreciate the time been following. I think you put it really well in terms of your images have this mystical kind of feel to them. That's so inspiring and so beautiful. And I look forward to seeing them every day. I'm going to link to your website, all your social channels in the show notes for people who also want to follow. Cannot wait for the black Panther film to come out. Um, we'll keep everybody abreast when the second I get news as to when that's going to be airing. Um, but other than that, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for all you do. Thank you for everyone listening. And until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time for all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc., please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.